Hey everybody, welcome to the Full Frame uh, Podcast. You just oh. uh, just uh, take, stop and take it from the top one more time. Okay, okay, you ready? Hey guys, welcome to the Full Frame Podcast. This week I got the chance to sit down with my buddy Brian Blum, who's a New York-based filmmaker whose film Blood and Water just crossed a million views on Amaletto on YouTube. We talked all about the New York indie film scene, how to make your projects personal to you, as well as gearing up for features, all sorts of cool stuff. So give it a listen. Wunderbar. Is it speeding? It is speeding. I don't see the time code running. Or is that, is that seconds at the end? It's seconds right here. Oh, I thought that was milliseconds. And I was like, those are some really listen, slow milliseconds. I don't want you looking at this. Sorry, I'm just, <laughs> I'm an audio engineer at heart. I understand. This is, I'm going to like block it with my body. Okay, <laughs> sure. You'll be leaning in a really awkward position the whole time. <laughs> the whole Let's time. Let's see how long you can hold it up. Um, how's it going, man? I'm pretty good. Yes. That's good. Yeah. Thank you for inviting me to your podcasting space. This is the most formal interview space I've ever been in. <laughs> uh, that's not a joke. And I think followed up by my last interview, which was the least formal, which was also just as like fun somehow. Yeah. We, like I was saying, we, we were in a car the whole time. But, uh, but yeah, how, how have you been? I've been pretty good. I've been, uh, you know, I, I started this job here where we were recording this uh, back in January, and I've been kind of fitting into having a more traditional kind of nine to five esque job. Okay. Uh, I was a freelancer for the past five years, and I was doing very well with that, but I just kind of needed to get out of the whole freelance lifestyle because the anxiety of not knowing if I was going to be able to make rent at the end of the month, like mm. in the slow months in the winter was kind of getting to me and I just didn't like, I didn't like it. And the stability of this is really awesome. Plus I have health insurance, which is great. Um, what's that like? <laughs> uh, having health insurance? Uh, it's a, when you work in the film industry, that's like a rare thing amongst your friends. Mm -hmm. That's great. So, so let's, I'd like to kind of get a baseline for you. Um, where are you from? Are you from New York originally? And then, um, like, kind of, um, how did you get into film? Um, I am from South Florida originally. I'm from the suburbs outside of Miami. Okay. Um, and I came to New York to go to NYU uh, for film school. Cool. And I stayed ever since. I graduated in 2015, although... NYU forgot that I graduated for like two years, so my diploma says 2017. Really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was some confusion because I made my thesis film, uh, Blood and Water, after graduating, but I had kind of shown them everything that that uh, they needed to see to give me a diploma that said 2015, mm -hmm. but then it was just there was clerical errors, and uh, but I'm okay with that because, yeah, whatever, I'm not going to get into that. Maybe we can take this back. I'm awkward. <laughs> no, please. Um, okay, so so you knew you wanted to pursue film in college. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's actually I wanted to be an engineer in high school. Sound um, No, like I wanted to build roller coasters. I was like really obsessed oh, with the roller cool. coaster tycoon. Ro okay, great. That video game. And, and I was like, I want to do this for my whole life. Uh, for real. For real, real. And I even applied to like Vanderbilt. I applied to Virginia Tech. I applied to some... Cool. I thought I wanted to do, I got, I was kind of late on the, I want to be a filmmaker train. Um, I was applying to engineering colleges and then at some point a flip just switched and I was like, 
I was really good at math and I was really good at, 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 at figuring things out in mathematical ways, but I just didn't enjoy it. And okay. I started making these commercials for the, the clubs in my high school because we had like a mm. morning video PA system mm-hmm. and there was a morning announcements. And so they'd let me like direct these little commercials for like PTA meetings and the Japanese club has like a movie marathon and... Video commercials or like audio announcements? Video commercials, video commercials. yeah. and That's cool. They were doing like a peanut butter drive and like <laughs> I'd direct like a little like, don't forget to bring in your like peanut butter to donate to this thing. And mm-hmm. I, I like taught myself After Effects to make these cool kind of like title sequences and stuff. And yeah. And then I just kind of, well, I got recruited to NYU for diving. I was a springboard and platform diver. Okay, cool. So I was going to get, we were going to get to this. <laughs> yes. Uh, um, but that's actually part of how I came to want to do film because I got recruited to NYU. Cool. And the only program here that interested me was the film program. Mm-hmm. And they, they paid for me to fly up and come visit the school. Mm-hmm. And when I walked into Tish's building and Mm -hmm. I saw the production office with all the film equipment and I saw the editing labs with all the computers and seeing everybody making movies and I even sat in on a sophomore year class where everyone makes kind of silent black and white films and they were screening their films and I saw the films that these kids were making. Mm -hmm. I think that was the moment in my head where I was like, I can do this and I actually really want to do this. Was that recruiting trip. So I like went into that recruiting trip visiting a film school thinking I wanted to do engineering. And then I I was just like kind of on a whim. I'm like, I'll go visit this film school because they're paying for it. And my whole life changed. That's Uh, great. And I came here. (laughs) Cool. So what was your experience um, with NYU? Were were you kind of initially like, I'll try out the film thing and like do this whole thing and I'll go back? Or were you thinking like, let me just go to school here, dive, and then see what happens? No, I... Once I kind of had my heart set on film, I don't think there was ever going back. Going, there was no going back. Um, it just it 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 made sense, and I knew that I could do it, and mm-hmm. I knew that I was was driven and motivated enough to do it. And you know, everybody told me my parents, my my mom's a doctor, and my dad is a lawyer, so they don't have like an artistic bone in their body. Um, <laughs> And they're very, they're very worried about like an unstable financial future, and everybody at every turn was saying like, and none of you know, you know, you have to be careful. You have to get a trade. You have to do something because this is a very difficult field that you're getting into. But I never really had to worry about that, um, because I, I've just always been the kind of person that'll figure it out. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, does that answer your question? Yes, it does. <laughs> so I'm curious, what, um, what was the first thing you made in college? Maybe in a in a class like for a grade, or maybe without, like maybe on your own. First thing I made in college, um, the first class I took in college at NYU is called Frame and Sequence. Yeah, Frame and Sequence. Um, it is a basic photography class. You're not allowed to do video freshman year at NYU. They may have changed that policy since, but mm. when I went there, that was the policy. Um, so you're given a DSLR, and you have to learn the basics of ISO, you know, focal length, depth of field, all that, mm-hmm. shutter speed, how that affects the image, um, which was great because I had never used a camera that really allowed you to play with 
those functions. I had previously shot everything on either like a Handycam mm-hmm. or like a Nikon Coolpix, <laughs> duct taped to a tripod, du- duct taped to a music stand because I had no tripod. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> my brother's, uh, my brother played the trumpet and his music stand was my first tripod. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I made this project, it was, we learned about this thing called the persistence of vision, which is why when you look at 24 images in a second, it looks like motion. Mm-hmm. Um, and I came up with the idea to take photographs of a woman and then photographs of a skull in the same place as her head. And then I took laser pointers and I just like took picture after picture of me shooting these laser pointers past her face and then shooting the laser pointers past the skull mm-hmm. and then rapidly intercutting between those using persistence, persistence of vision to see if I could create like the image of a face and a skull like constantly morphing back into each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and it turned out really cool. And that was the first thing I made in film school. Um, yeah. And all of my professors were really worried about if it was dangerous for the actor's eyes. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and it was rejected from the film school festival for that reason. Oh, no. <laughs> but it's – and I did the research. And I even like was like, look – oh, shit, I just hit my microphone. You're good. Um, I was like, look, here's all the research, line by line. It's totally safe. Uh, she didn't complain. <laughs> she didn't compl- She's not blind. She can still see. Um, that's somewhere on YouTube. Um, yes, I'm, I'm curious to see this now. Yeah, I'll send it to you. Please. Um, I love that. That's so cool. And it's also kind of like maybe, I don't know what the guidelines of any sort of assignment were, but it seems like within that you're able to kind of do something fresh and new that just like I uh, just kind of want to explore that this thing. that particular assignment was do something experimental mm-hmm. that was like the whole guideline and so I was like oh this is experimental I'm experimenting with this concept that I learned about mm-hmm. um, and I'm really proud of it and I really appreciated that class because it really made you think about the f- basic fundamentals of filmmaking mm-hmm. um, you weren't worried about storytelling. There was no story to that video. It's like six minutes of like rave nightmare fuel. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but, but, you know, I, I really appreciated that class because it really kind of solidified my fundamentals as a filmmaker. And, you know, thinking of everything you have to think about before you even start thinking about story. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Cool. And then what was the first post that what was the first like maybe non-experimental more scripted structured kind of thing so the final project for that class Mm -hmm. um i made a film called exterminator and at this point i was really fed up with not being allowed to do video so i did something that was like live action stop motion Mm -hmm. uh and (laughs) it was the story of a it was a cockroach uh that was taking revenge on the tenant of the apartment that my he lived in for exterminating his cockroach wife. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's, like, told through, like, the cockroach, like, somehow pulls a kitchen knife into a toaster and turns it into, like, a cannon and shoots the knife, like, into the tenant's, like, chest, and the t- tenant is played by me, <laughs> so mm-hmm. I die. And then, like, I wake up suddenly and I'm not dead, and it turns into this chase scene, and I have these, like, raid grenades... <laughs> that I'm like throwing at the roach and then the roach dies at the end and I step on it and it's kind of a sad, tragic ending. And the roach is like, Julia, I'll be with you soon. It's very dramatic. 
<laughs> Where did this come from? Uh, I have always been terrified of roaches. Yes. Uh, I, and I actually know how that started when I was in kindergarten. My dad, uh, being a great parent, thought it would be hilarious to buy these rubber roaches and put them all over my room. <laughs> And then he chased me and my sister, who I think was like three or four at the time, all the way across the house into uh, another bathroom, tiny bathroom, with the roaches in his hand, like, oh, they're, they're cute, look at them. And then he starts <laughs> shoving them in his mouth, and my sister and I are screaming in the, in the bathroom, just like, it was a nightmare, and I, I've never been able to go near roaches ever again. Oh, no. <laughs> like, I mean, roaches are gross. Everybody hates them. It's but, true. But if I see one, I will shriek, and you will hear it across In state lines. <laughs> <laughs> Sound like my wife. It's really... She'll sometimes call me... And, like sobbing, like there's a cockroach. In the- <laughs> I don't know if I'm quite that bad. I'm just very, very startled by bugs. Like if I see it there on the wall, I can take care of it. Mm-hmm. But if I don't see it and it appears very close to me, I will freak out. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to kind of challenge myself to get over that fear. Mm-hmm. And the original plan was to shoot it with real cockroaches. We were going to order, like, either dead or frozen cockroaches. Amazing. Um, We didn't end up doing that because it's logistically very difficult to ship live or dead cockroaches. Um, It's a whole world I've never thought about before. Yeah, well, (laughs) now you know. Uh, Especially in New York City, it's very difficult. Uh, New York has lots of weird laws about shipping things that are or were alive. Mm. Um, Interesting. Makes sense. So we ended up going with a rubber cockroach. But uh, probably for the best. That's that's I think where the that's where the germ of the idea came from. I was really excited to kind of mm-hmm. take on this subject matter that I have always stayed very far away from. No, that's fascinating. I uh, ha- so how's New York living with uh, with uh, kind of cockroach being uh, prevalent here? <laughs> oh yes, um, I've I've had the privilege of living in very, very new buildings for the past several years. Oh, that's good. (laughs) So it hasn't been too much of an issue for me, but it has been a little bit of an issue. Mm -hmm. And when it is an issue, it's awful. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, old buildings uh, are not the best place. I'm I'm about to move into an older building for the first time uh, in my time here in New York, so I'm very not excited for that particular aspect of it. Well, Godspeed. <laughs> <laughs> You'll need it. I'll figure it out. I'll, you know, next time you have me on, I'll tell you because by that time I'll have experienced a cockroach problem, I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, so, so that was, did you learn, and uh, I guess a broader statement for, we don't have to go into every project you did in yeah. college, but I'm curious, like, do, what did, um, what were some of the bigger lessons you learned before you got to your thesis film? Um, I mean, I spent all of my time before my thesis film trying everything. Mm-hmm. I made horror films. I made comedies. I made. I actually stayed very far away from straight dramas. That was what I thought was very boring to me because mm-hmm. at the time I didn't appreciate the power of a really strong drama. And I was very attracted to kind of. I was attracted to horror films. I was attracted to. Not that those are illegitimate or not powerful at all. Right. But I wanted to do things that were not mainstream. 
I was very attracted to like Edgar Wright absurd comedy. Yeah. I still love Edgar Wright mm -hmm. um, and his style. And you know, my my junior year film called Murphy's Law was a straight up homage to his style, um, which was pretty successful for a junior year film, but uh, it was a student film. Um, yeah, I, I just being able to try everything, which is in, there's a whole debate about is film school worth it in the film industry, and mm -hmm. a lot of people think it's not because the truth is you could just get on film sets as a grip or as a PA and then work, you know, learn and work your way up that way, mm -hmm. and you'll probably learn faster and you'll learn more important things for being an adult, not necessarily being an artist, but being an adult and being a person who's working in the industry, you're gonna learn all that on set. You're not gonna learn that in film school, but what film school affords you is the chance to try everything. Mm -hmm. You know, I went into film school thinking I wanted to be a cinematographer and an editor. I found out in film school because I was afforded the chance to try both of those things that I actually really don't like either of those things. Interesting. I, I like editing my own projects, but I'm not very enthusiastic about editing things that aren't my own brainchild. Sure. Um, and cinematography is a whole completely different language to me. Mm -hmm. I, it, my brain just doesn't function that way. Same. I'm not a cinematographer. Um, I couldn't be if I really tried and I really tried. Mm -hmm. uh, so C Cinematography to me is not unlike a, a d directing or something like playing a sport where like I feel like you have to have both natural talent and the really like kind of like discipline like technical kind. You of. really do. I also think it's just a different way of looking at the artwork and looking at the world that cinematographers have. I think it's probably something neurological that your brain is wired differently and what you appreciate out of things. Mm -hmm. I think you need to be a very specific type of person to want to be a cinematographer and to be able to be a good cinematographer. And Yeah, it's just that's not that's not me. Mm -hmm. I'm more about the narrative storytelling and the writing, and I would rather hire somebody else to that I trust to make my films beautiful and to enhance my storytelling through the visual lens. Totally, because it's just not the way my brain works. Also, I'm legally blind, so <laughs> yeah. And then the more I get into my edit career, people are like, "Well, you know how to color?" I'm like, "Well, I'm colorblind, so I'm, so I could I could I didn't do even it." Know that. Well, it's not like prohibitive, you know. Yeah. It's not what people think it I mean, is. I can wear glasses right. and I can drive, although I am legally blind. Correct. So I guess yeah, it's the same kind of thing. Yeah. Only that that might be the only way it affects me. <laughs> I can't color grade anything. Um, damn. But anyways, um, I'm curious, uh, what, uh, um, moving into your senior thesis film or after your graduating thesis film, Yeah. um, did you always want to do it about diving? No, no. I, I actually had a completely different script that was kind of inspired by that TV show Misfits, the BBC TV show. Mm -hmm. It was um, teenagers who get superpowers and use them to get laid. And it was all set in this one rave party. And the main character, like everyone has these really cool superpowers. It's like a group of like four friends. One controls fire. One can, can control people's minds as long as she's physically like in contact with them, which in retrospect I think was straight up ripped from Misfits. <laughs> um, 
one of them can duplicate himself, and then the main character can shoot confetti from his fingertips with like a party horn noise. I love it. And it's super lame power. Is it his only power? That's his only power. (laughs) Uh, So he gets this really lame power, and all of them can use their powers to get laid, uh, but he can't because it's just really kind of pathetic. And it ends up with all of them losing their powers, Mm -hmm. and there's this big kind of super-powered, like, monster villain that stole all their powers, but she won't take his powers because his powers are so lame. So he has to, like, figure out how to use this really lame power to win the fight. To win. <laughs> and he does. In the end, like, it ends with, uh, and I'm never going to make this film, so I don't mind spoiling the ending. But uh, <laughs> she has him, like, on his knees, and she's monologuing him, and he gets his hands free and then plugs up her ears. And then you hear this, like, <laughs> noise, and she, like, coughs out some confetti, and then her head just explodes and starts <laughs> raining confetti everywhere. And I really should make this film. But this sounds like it could be a fun animated film. Oh, that's a great idea. I don't know why I've never considered that. Well, now you have to make it. <laughs> now I have to make it. The problem is just that superhero movies are so oversaturated, especially like the origin story movie right now because of Marvel. What are you talking about? <laughs> I'm sorry. You've missed the like 19 superhero movies that come out each month. Oh, Oh, those. <laughs> yes. Something called the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Maybe you've heard of it. I don't know. It's kind of a hipster thing. <laughs> um, so I – that was originally my script. Mm-hmm. Um, and was it – did you reconsider because superheroes – superhero films were starting to saturate a market or – No, I – honestly, I couldn't tell you why I switched – no, actually, I remember now that I think about it. It's been Please. a while since I've revisited this. Wonderful. So uh, flashback to freshman year. I was a diver yeah. in college. I was recruited to NYU, as I mentioned earlier. Um, my freshman year happened January 13th. It was a Friday the 13th. Regular day at practice, I was doing a dive called a reverse two and a half off the, the three-meter board, which is the higher of the bouncy boards. Um, I know where this is going because I've seen the film. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and I had a really bad takeoff that mm-hmm. I probably should have aborted, but I didn't. And in the middle of the dive, the back of my head hit the board. And then I kept spinning at this point unconscious, and my feet hit the board. And I don't remember hitting the water. I remember waking up underwater, which Mm. is terrifying in of itself. Yeah. Um, And then I swam to the side of the pool deck, pulled myself out, and just laid there. And So no one dove in to grab you or anything? People would have, but I, I swam myself out. I was capable of that, which they told me later was a really bad idea because if there was any damage under the surface... I could have exacerbated that um, yeah. and potentially, like, you know, if I fractured my neck, I could have broken it. Goodness. Um, thankfully, it, the damage was superficial. I just had a, I had 13 staples in the back of my head. But, you know, I was an inch away from, from really, really hurting being yourself. paraplegic. Like, yeah. Or even worse, quadriplegic. Um, Goodness. Yeah. Uh, that... Incident took me about three years to recover from psychologically. Mm. I remember my senior year, I did that dive again for the first time. It took me three years. And I think doing the dive again is what really solidified that I was going to do this movie. Mm. Um, Because I had my own personal journey of overcoming fear 
it was something that I had lived and it was way more intimate of a story. It was my story, which is why I wanted to tell it. And it was my collegiate diving story, which is why I wanted to tell it as my collegiate thesis film. Mm -hmm. That's why I chose to put the superhero film on the back burner because it just felt like the right time to tell the story. I didn't think I was going to be as excited to tell the story after college because I knew I was going to retire from the sport after college. Um, So that's, that's why I chose to do that film then. So you were able to continue despite the um, incident, accident. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean... So there wasn't like a, a, an extended period of time where you were like, I can't... There was like two weeks. No, I, I got back in the pool pretty quick. I just avoided doing that particular dive. Okay, understood. The, the reverse two and a half is you're, you're hurtling forwards off the board but flipping backwards. Mm-hmm. And in diving, there's... there's uh, Springboard diving, there's four different categories. There's forwards, which is like a front flip, backwards, which is a back flip, mm-hmm. reverse, which is jumping forwards, flipping backwards, and excuse me, uh, and inverse um, or inward, um, which is jumping backwards, flipping forwards. And then there's also twisters, which is like a fifth category. But um, putting that aside for now, uh, my reverses, I just kind of took it very easy on the reverse dives because in competition you have to do at least one or two from each category Mm -hmm. so I had to do reverses so I just did the very easy reverses and kind of stuck with that for like three years until I was ready to work my way back up and do the harder dives yeah well it it shows in the film not only your knowledge of the sport but also like uh, that it's personal because I think in the film you have an interesting dynamic with the mom which I want to ask you about but also um (laughs) Uh, because it does seem very, like, intimate. Um, but also uh, this kind of, like, he journey he goes on outside of any kind of outside external influence where it's just him with the, you know, with TV or, like, him, like, you know, going through the motions to get himself to back on the board. Mm-hmm. Um, so what was your writing process like, kind of, like, approaching all of this personal stuff for the first time? I, well, the script went through a lot of different iterations. Originally, the character was female, and it was a male coach, and diving for her was this kind of escape from her worldly problems, which is always kind of how I viewed my relationship to the sport. I was never Olympic-bound. I was never, I was never, you know, motivated to, I always wanted to be as good as I could be, but I more viewed it as, something that I enjoyed that kind of made me forget about the stresses of my day. And I, it was very meditative for me. Mm-hmm. So it was originally about a girl who was dealing with some kind of psychosexual trauma um, in her life. Uh, I think she was being sexually abused and the sport for her was this way to get away from that. Mm-hmm. And then she has this accident and she loses this very cathartic thing in her life and how she kind of deals, has to now deal with her problems. Mm -hmm. Um, Felt that that was a little too big of a story for a short film, moved away from that aspect and made it more personal, simply about a a trauma recovery story. Um, Because the film's still 20 minutes. 18. Is it 18? It's 18, yeah. It's 20 with credits. With credits. So... um, was the original script, that script, a bit longer than that? The original script was 14 pages. Oh, wow. Yeah, it ended up a little bit over. Um, but uh, 
I'm sorry, I just totally lost my train. No, of that that version, the first version with the girl and yes, um, that was 14 pages. Uh, no, that one never got written. That was oh, like okay. that was that was before I started writing. That was the original version of the story. Um, the problem actually was that we needed a real diver because at the budget I was operating at, I wasn't going to be able to do any kind of facial superimposition. Facial superimposition, mm. and. I knew I wanted to showcase real diving. So the first step was to find the actor. And there are only so many Olympic divers who can pull off the reverse three and a half off 10 meter, which is the dive that I settled on, the accident dive being. Um, I settled on that dive because that dive has killed people in real life. Wow. Um, the diver who made that dive famous, so to speak, Greg Luganis, um, is also famous for hitting his head at the Olympics in Seoul, doing a, a very similar dive, the reverse two and a half, the one that I hit my head doing mm -hmm. on the at the Olympics. Um, there was another diver in Russia. Um, I'm probably going to butcher his name. I think it was Sergei Chalish Bashvili or something like that. Um, and there is a video out there of him because Greg pulled off this crazy new dive no one had done in the history of the sport. And so the Russians were like, we gotta, we gotta, we gotta do that dive. Mm -hmm. There's a video of him doing it and he hits his head and he dies. Goodness gracious. Um, and I showed that video to my VFX supervisor and I was like, this is what I want. Yeah, and that, I was gonna ask you about that too, that particular shot. Cause it is just kind of a stark like, not wide, but like a long shot almost like profile. It's very like visceral when when it get, when he gets hit. Yeah. Sorry, spoilers. That was inspired by <laughs> that. That was inspired by the Sergey video and the Greg Luganis video. I really wanted to kind of show it from an audience perspective, mm -hmm. and we literally shot that from the bleachers. Yeah. Uh, the cameras placed in the bleachers. It was important to me because I really wanted. I mean, when you watch diving as a sport, that's your biggest fear. You don't want you don't want to see that because mm -hmm. you don't want to see somebody die. Sure. And well, and from somebody who doesn't know anything about the sports, never really watched it. Um, it's it was not. It first of all, the the film makes it very like again visceral and very like present. But I didn't realize there was that much risk to people I died. Didn't know that. There's another person who died too. Um, I forget his name, but he was an Australian diver. Mm. He died doing a lead up, which is like a practice dive for the reverse three and a half on the lower platform, the five meter. He just died at practice one day. Goodness. Um, so I think it's killed two people recorded. The funny thing is, uh, to go back to the fact that we were searching for actors, yeah, the yeah. only actor I could find was Steele Johnson who was interested because he himself wants to be a filmmaker. He wants to be a cinematographer. He's a photographer. He was. He was in film school at Purdue. He's very interested in film. So I knew, so he was really interested in being a part of the project. Mm -hmm. And he also is, so far as I know, the only person maybe to date, or at least at the time that it happened to him, to actually hit his head doing that dive and live. Uh, he hit his head doing the dive from the movie. So the character he played, he actually went through that accident in real life uh, when he was 13. Goodness. And 
that's insane. It's crazy because that's now his best dive. It was one of his highest scoring dives at Olympic trials. Mm -hmm. He went to the Olympics in Rio in 2016, did that dive, won a silver medal. Wow. Um, but uh, so there's kind of, it's kind of an interesting thing that, that, that he's literally lived through the story. Um, mm -hmm. And so we had a male actor and then we changed the story and made it, made it more just about trauma and recovery. So did you find him or did he find you? Um, I found him. So my coach at NYU, Scott Doney, is a 1992 silver medalist. He's also in the movie. And his wife is also in the movie. And his daughter is also in the movie. <laughs> there's one shot that I think, there's one scene where all three of them are in there. Uh, his wife, Kylie Vernoff, plays Garrett Delaney's mother. So okay. she's the female lead. Uh, he has a cameo playing himself at the end in the pool, um, at the pool and the pool at the end yeah. he's i'm not going to mention that he's also at the beginning he's at the end of the fuck i'm just spoiling my whole movie <laughs> um, <laughs> um people are going to watch okay watch anyway emphatically they'll watch <laughs> um yeah so he plays himself he is very well known in the diving world. Mm -hmm. He knew of Steele. He'd gone to some of the Olympic training camps and coached. And so he's coached Steele before, and he knew that Steele was very interested in the film. So he recommended I reach out to Steele. So I made a Twitter account specifically to reach out to Steele. I wasn't on Twitter. I'm still, like, not really on Twitter. I mm -hmm. have an account, but I never use it. Oh, um, I'm guilty of that. I love Twitter. I mean, I like I use it on very specific occasions, mostly just to kind of DM people I want to work with. Sure. Um, so I'm, I'm sure if you go to my like tweets and replies, the last like 15 tweets are, Hey, what's your business inquiries email? <laughs> Set random person. Um, <laughs> I love that. um, but, uh, so I DM'd him and he was very interested. We talked, talked it through and I approached him at first to be like, Hey, can I interview you about your experience hitting your head? I want to know your story. Yeah. Um, and then later I pitched, would you like to be in the movie? And he was very excited to do it. Nervous, but very excited. That's cool. Um, I don't think there's anybody else in the world, if I'm being honest, who could have played the role. So I'm incredibly grateful that he took the time out of his incredibly busy schedule to mm -hmm. give me two weeks of his life, which is not, not a small thing. No, not at all. Especially because I wasn't allowed to pay him because of NCAA rules. Oh, yeah, I guess not. Yeah. NCAA made the project very, very difficult. Yeah, they like technically owned his likeness, so I had to like get permission from them and approval to even photograph him in any way. Hmm. Yeah, it's weird. Very interesting. I was going to ask uh, where he's where is he from? He's from uh, Purdue, not Purdue. He's from I'm going to say it wrong. It's Carmel, Indiana. It's not okay. Carmel. I always say Carmel like <laughs> the car company. Right. It's Carmel, Indiana. Uh, he went to Purdue University, mm -hmm. uh, and he recently left Purdue and is now a professional diver. Wow. I think he's still in Indiana, though. So what was um, the – did he come to New York to film? So I saw in the credits there was the Long Island diving team. Was that it? Mm -hmm. that you, so did you shoot it out in Long Island? So we shot the film at two different pools because there's two different pool locations in the story. The mm -hmm. first one was in Nassau, Long Island, at the Eisenhower Aquatic Center. Mm -hmm. That's where the Long Island diving team practices. And the other pool was the University of Michigan pool. Oh, cool. So we went to Michigan for, I think, three days. And that pool is Kylie's 
or Kylie Tracy's pool. Kylie's the actress. Um, so is so Garrett's home pool is, is the University of Michigan. So full like full crew, everybody from here went there or Well, it was difficult because we had just finished college and everybody was like, oh, I can't work for free anymore because I, I have to pay rent. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but a lot of people, I had spent all of film school sound mixing everybody's thesis films. So everybody owed me favors, but nobody could give me two weeks. So we had kind of a different crew for each leg. So we had a Long Island unit. We had a Jersey unit, which is where all the house stuff happened. Mm-hmm. That, was in a, that was in New Jersey. And we had a Michigan unit. And some people kind of stayed over from each. I think the DP, the AD... And the producers were present throughout. And then some people did two legs. Some people just did one. So that's why our credits are so incredibly long. Yeah. Because <laughs> there's like a there's like three to four different people for each crew position. Wow. Um, that's great, though. It was awesome. I mean, I made a lot of friends. I met a lot of really cool people working on that. Um, we had a lot of fun. It was, yeah. it, was, it was an incredibly fun shoot. Also, I knew just looking at everybody's student films, that the biggest problem that happens with student films is they try to pack too much stuff into each day. And then they end up missing the important things. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to fall into that pitfall, so I specifically budgeted 10 hours of work into a 12-hour day every day. And that was very smart. It did make the film a lot more expensive, but because Steele was on the film and he was kind of famous within the diving world, we got a lot of success on on Indiegogo. We, I think we crowdsourced between our two campaigns. Um, I think we crowdsourced a little under 30 grand. That's great. Um, so we had, we were able to afford to take an extra three days of shooting just mm-hmm. to have very chill, relaxed days. We never went over. We had a turnaround average of, I think, 11 and a half hours every day. Mm-hmm. Um, some days we had like 14 hours of turnaround. It was really comfortable. That's great. Um, like we, yeah, it was it was a fun shoot. Mm-hmm. We also had this really awesome uh, craft services slash catering guy who like made home cooked meals every day. Like that shoot was like a vacation. It was like a vacation. It was like a bunch of friends making a film, eating great food and also traveling all across the country. It was really fun. That's awesome. It was really fun. It was maybe one of the most fun film shoots of my life and I can never afford to do it again. (laughs) (laughs) One day. Until the next time. Yes. Um, So that's great. What was the, um, so two weeks, um, and then what was the turnaround time in post? Uh, it took me about a year to finish the film. Okay. Because I, which is long for a short, but I was dealing with becoming a freelancer and figuring out how to do my taxes and <laughs> and finding a place to live and kind of settling down and becoming financially independent. Mm-hmm. Um, so it took a lot longer to finish the film than probably it could have. But that was fine. Um, I needed to take the time on it to make it as good as possible. And that was really important to me. I didn't want to rush it. And um, you didn't cut it yourself? No, no. I learned very quickly in film school that I can't cut my own films. I mean, I can, but I'll never be able to say, okay, this is done. Yeah. I will always keep working on it. And it will take, if I cut it myself, it still wouldn't be done. It'd still be. <laughs> in fact, like, I'd still look at that film and I'm like, oh, there's, here's an edit I'd make. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm not going to George Lucas my films. I just need to, <laughs> I need to move on. 
Um, totally. I'm very, very, very incredibly proud of it. But I don't think any artist is ever really done with their work. I just think if you if you make that your workflow, you will go insane. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people explore the same themes and ideas throughout film to film to film to film. Yeah. To film. Um, did you do the own your own like sound mix for it? I didn't do that either. Um, for the same reason as editing. Sure. Um, I also really wanted the experience of working with someone else. I thought I that was important for me as yeah. a as a, someone learning to direct films. I needed to learn to collaborate with people on that front. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, passing the I edit worked off. with yeah. I worked with um, Joanna Fang, uh, who later went on to become the first transgender woman to win an Emmy. Um, and for what do you know? She won it for outstanding sound design on A and E's Cartel Land. Oh, cool! Um, which which is excellent. I'm mm-hmm. very I'm ecstatic for her. Um, but uh, she so got her before the Emmy. Yeah, I did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so now when she's totally totally famous, which I'm sure she will be. Um, I can say I knew her when. Yeah, of course. I worked with her. I worked with her. That's We're great. best friends. <laughs> We're not really best Tell friends. Tell everybody. Um, That's great, though. Um, and, yeah, and I think for me, the passing off the edit, <clears throat> sound is a no-brainer because I am horrid with it. But um, but uh, the actual, like, nuts and bolts, like, editing, I think, is so difficult. I also just generally, from my perspective as someone who has a lot of background in sound and I have sound design films as well, mm-hmm. I really relish the opportunity to collaborate with someone who might bring new ideas to the table. You know, when you're working on something, it really doesn't matter in what field. If it's your brainchild, you're going to lose a level of objectivity. You're going to fall in love with your own thoughts and your own vision, but you mm-hmm. never know what someone else can bring to the table. And a lot of directors, I feel like, are very protective of their baby, but I personally, and I am in my own ways, but I believe strongly that, that, you know, a piece can be even stronger if you bring other perspectives into it. Absolutely. Um, obviously, like, it has to fit in line with your vision, but, but I, I think it's kind of silly to completely close off creative suggestions from people um, because they're not going to make those suggestions until you outline what your vision is. So their suggestions are always trying to be in line with your vision. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been told I'm a very collaborative director to work with, especially by composers and by sound designers and editors and stuff like that. And I really appreciate that relationship with people, and I think it makes for stronger art. I totally agree. I think uh, the best directors are collaborative directors. Um, I think um, there's an interview... Olivia Wilde did an interview with Sam Jones where she talks about that. Um, you are the, like, filter for all these crazy ideas that people come to you with. Like, you know, you, you, the, the tone and the mood and all of the, like, the focus is you, but you are the, like, funnel for it. And I always thought that was really interesting. Yeah. Um, and I couldn't agree more. I think that that, um, that you... Put in, just even considering, oh, the best idea came from this guy about this one scene, but then the next scene, the best idea came from that guy. I it's think. a team sport. Totally. Um, sports. <laughs> sports. Sport. <laughs> um, so then what? after uh, you said it took uh, a couple years to, to finish. Um, it took a year in post, yeah. A year in post, but then you said you graduated in 15, and in 17 it was done? I released it in 17, yeah. Well, we shot at the end of 15. 
we released at the beginning of 17. So gotcha. it was maybe a little more than one calendar year, but yeah. who's, who's counting? Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I am because I'm curious what uh, – after college, um, w- I know you work uh, freelance sound or did. Um, so what was it um, – why did you gravitate towards sound? And then what was the freelance market like when you got out? I gravitated towards sound because I – took the sound mixing class in at NYU. Actually, I didn't. I ended up booming just a, a thesis film as a PA. Mm-hmm. And then someone oh no, I produced I produced a I produced an intermediate film which is the junior level film at NYU. And our sound mixer dropped out like 2 days before the shoot. Oh no. And I could only find a replacement for one of the 3 days, so I had a friend of mine Lewis Gordon, who's excellent. If you ever need a sound mixer, hit him up. Uh, he sat on the phone with me the night before the shoot uh, and walked me through the whole NYU sound rig, gave me like a two and a half hour crash course on how to sound mix. That's great. And I mixed the film myself. And it sounded pretty good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when word got out that I had mixed a film, everyone and their mother and their brother uh, was texting me to ask me to mix their films. Mm-hmm. And then when I got to the point where I was, I felt I had learned enough that I didn't need to mix every film that came my way, people were like, hey, I'll give you a hundred bucks to mix my film. Mm-hmm. Which to a, to a college student, you're like, a whole hundred bucks? <laughs> where do I sign? Right. Um, <laughs> how many weeks? <laughs> how many weeks for a hundred dollars? So, you know, I started making money, and it wasn't a lot of money at the time, but as a student filmmaker, 100 bucks was 100 bucks, and I was happy Absolutely. to make it. Yeah. Um, and it became very apparent that the sound mixers were going to be the first kids who were able to make money off their craft because none of us need reels, unlike cinematographers. So there is no way you can respectfully ask a sound mixer to work for free. You just can't, and they'll laugh in your face. So That's a good point. I was like, hey, I, I don't hate this, <laughs> and I'll be able to make money doing it. Mm-hmm. So it's in I, the industry. It's in the industry, exactly. It wasn't, you know, w- working retail or or bartending or something, which in, in no way disrespect to the people who do that. Those are in- incredible, important jobs that you can totally make a living off of. I just knew I didn't want to have a job outside of the industry. Mm-hmm. Um it was important for me because otherwise I would feel like I wasn't doing everything I possibly could to advance my career. Totally. Um, so I started sound mixing and it was difficult at first. Um, I didn't make enough money to get by my first year. Uh, my second year I did though, as I worked very hard and kind of built up a clientele base and had some repeat clients and uh, it just took really getting to know other sound mixers, making them like you, so they would pass off the gigs they couldn't take or didn't want to take or double book themselves for or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and then impressing those clients and having them come back to you. It was a lot of processes of doing that. A lot of cold calling other sound mixers saying, hey man, I just kind of want to learn about the industry. Can I buy you a beer? Um, and most sound mixers will say yes. Yeah. Yes, you can buy me a beer. <laughs> yes, I'll take free alcohol. Um well, and, and, and a good mixer is, like, invaluable. I mean, so it, I think more than anything, people will um, come to me and be like, 
hey, uh, do you know somebody who can do sound this this weekend, like right away? Yeah. Everybody like, waits to the last second to find a sound mixer. And, you know, I, I'm on the programming committee for Miami Film Festival. And uh, this year also for the Bushwick Film Festival. And cool. watching all of the films that are submitted, I will tell you the first thing you notice is bad sound. Of course. If the cinematography is just okay, like you can still get a pass. But if I can't hear what your actors are saying, if I can't like understand what they're saying, you have no story. Mm-hmm. And that happens so often. I see it so many times. I'm beautiful, beautiful short film, excellently lit, like anamorphic lenses, probably shot on like the red latest camera, like 15K camera or whatever's coming out next year. Like, <laughs> and then... Like someone's talking through a wall. Well, it's kind of like the idea of going back to horror, like the the found footage or whatever it is. It's like it can be shaky and it can be crazy. You can make a great found footage film. But if the sound is bad and the pictures, it's like the inverse of that. Yeah, exactly. It's crazy. Well, that's cool. And then so you were able to start just kind of freelancing as your day job, kind Mm -hmm. of like your bread and butter gig. Yeah. I love that. Um, Yeah, for me, it was editing. It was like I have a... Um, a joke with my mom because my mom was like, all right, like, time to start applying to jobs. You're like two or three months out from, from graduation. I'm like, yeah, didn't apply to any jobs. And then <laughs> kind of like getting into the summer, um, an old place where I had interned, um, they had a TV show. And then the people who produced the TV show were like, we're going to start our own company and take the TV show. <laughs> so they did. And then they called me because they were like, oh, he's cheap. But I had a job <laughs> right out of college editing, which is awesome. Um, so my joke with my mom is I didn't have to apply to any jobs. I just got one. <laughs> now, that's not the same anymore. <laughs> of course, I've applied it's to nice jobs. nice to feel wanted. But right out of the gate, I was like, yeah. I feel good about this. It's good. And that puts you, like, probably ahead of the gate of, like, 75% of the kids that graduated from NYU with me. So... I think sometimes, too, um, and this isn't just an NYU thing. I don't know if it is there at all, actually. I just can't speak for kids from other colleges, so that's why I keep mentioning it. And for, for me, it, particularly, the, uh, I worked at the college like TV station, and one of the things they had with people who were recent grads um, was, but I, I just graduated film school. I'm a director. And they want to get a job doing Directing. the... Ha. <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> uh, yeah. And it's like... That's well, nice. Well, no, but like you need to, you know, yes, great. You just graduated film school, but you don't know anything yet. Yeah, you're not a director. So like maybe work your way up or be willing to, hey, we need to clean out the fridge today. You know what I'm saying? When some people just aren't willing to do that. Right. It's interesting. Um <clears throat> At what point in your career you consider yourself a filmmaker and say, oh, I'm comfortable telling people that I am a filmmaker mm-hmm. or that I am a director. Um, I didn't really feel that way until I think this year. Um, because really? I started, Yeah. I mean, I started having films that were winning awards. Mm-hmm. Um, I still don't feel comfortable telling people I'm an award-winning film director because that still feels kind of facetious. Yeah. And also a little bit like... But it's um, true. I still don't say it because I don't feel like I've quite earned that moniker. Sure. Um, but I – it's funny. I, I feel comfortable with one step behind what I literally am, you know. 
That now I feel sense. comfortable telling people I'm a director. I've had a film that won a jury prize at Miami Film Festival. I've mm-hmm. had a film that was shortlisted for a British Academy Award. I've had a film that won the highest honor that NYU can bestow on a student filmmaker. Um, you know, I've I've won prize money, but I still don't like feel comfortable telling people, oh, I'm an award-winning filmmaker. There's some sort of like prestige that goes. Um, it's almost like it puts a stigma on the next thing. Yeah. Does that make sense? So like my um, latest film didn't get into a festival that I wanted it to get into. So I was just like, eh, I'll just put this one online. But the one before that did get into a couple of the ones that I submitted to. So it was kind of this weird like, well, why am I, are my films not as good or getting worse? Or like, is it just not their cup of tea? Or like, you I don't. You can't look at it that way. Exactly, but like, it's kind of like. But if you go and you say, "I'm an award-winning filmmaker," then people want to go. What's the next? I don't know. Maybe it's the I think, next. Yeah, image. I I get that. I also just like. The one thing I can't stand in this industry is people who, think they're really hot shit, when they're not. Right. And people who try to oversell themselves. Like, humility is important, I think. Totally. I think you can be humble to a fault, for sure. Um, but people who oversell themselves, like, I don't want to be viewed that way as a person who thinks that they are bigger than they are. Well, I, I want to be self-aware about where I am in this industry, and I understand that I have high aspirations, and I will get there eventually, but I understand that I'm not there yet, mm-hmm. and I have things to do and things to learn and, and, you know, roads to travel on. But I think this goes back to what we were talking about with the collaborative aspect. It's I I am the funnel, but I do not have all the answers. And I, I you know, to, to some degree as a director, you have to you have to just make decisions. Yeah. And um, and they may be wrong decisions, but you should still be making them right. But I think like. Still, it's the kind of like I'm willing to learn from other people that have um, – I was talking to uh, Elias about this on the podcast a couple weeks ago. He said, you know, there are people who are on set. As a director, maybe you're fortunate to do things once a year, you know, something you wrote and directed. Mm-hmm. Maybe you're only directing a sh- one short a year. And even that's like high productivity. Yeah. Um, for him, he's like these people, these crew members are on set all the time if you're not willing to listen to people that have been in this situation before then like you know you you have to pretend like you know you have to use their advice yeah um and and the same goes i think for saying like oh well i already know a thing i'm the auteur i don't want your i think all of that is is bs but yeah i mean there's a difference between being talented and being an asshole (laughs) totally of course i mean you can be the most talented person in the world. And you can also be nice to your crew. Mm-hmm. You can also be, I mean, I understand that if you're a really busy person, you maybe don't have the time to sit, you know, talk to every PA and say, oh, hi, you're new here. Like, what's your name? Like, where'd you come from? But like, you can also just say like, hi, welcome. Like, happy to have you. I'm the director. Nice to meet you. Like, looking forward to working with you. You know, that totally. takes five seconds. You can probably say it much faster than I just did. Well, and especially on these small things that we do where, like, people are working for usually below what standard rate especially would be. Especially if you're not paying them. You better be fucking nice. Just thankful. <laughs> just going around saying just thank Just say you. thank you. Yes. You know, it's not uh, hard. It's not hard at all. 
Yeah. And it goes a long way. When I was a sound mixer, I used to say, you can pay, me, you can treat me like shit if you pay me my full rate. <laughs> then I will take all of your attitude all day. Sure. And you're going to be paying me 1200 bucks a day. Like, <laughs> But nobody does that. No. <laughs> yeah. It's I've gotten that like once. Which is the, like the best day ever, even if it is just a total oh, yeah. day. Yeah, I'll take it. <laughs> I'll take it. And then I'll buy drinks with your money after. And I'll still have plenty left over. <laughs> When I figured out that I didn't want to PA anymore was when... Isn't that such a great day? Oh, my gosh. Well, the thing is, like... I No offense, PAs, but even <laughs> after, can't well, do it. I have nothing but admiration for the 100%. people that... 100%. Like, because I'm just not one it of It is the people. hardest job. And um, it's wild because I used to share safe rides home with a couple people um, when I was working on The Americans. And um, we would... The Americans was all nights... All 16-hour days. Like, it was crazy. Double oof. And um, sometimes holidays. So the days that were holidays. Yes. So the days that were holidays were, um, you know, you get paid. If it's a good day, 16-hour days, you get about 200 bucks SBA, Mm -hmm. which is wild. (laughs) But um, maybe a little bit over, but not much. Yeah. And um, I was sharing these rides home with people. That were in props and in the union and in, like, uh, sound and things like this. And, you know, I think it was, a like, a Columbus Day or something. And somebody said, um, it's a good payday today. It's like, oh, so you, they're making, on a holiday, double pay. But also, after um, 12 hours, it's double pay time and a half. Yeah. So they were walking away with a couple grand. And you're just like... For a day the of work. The PA is making two. 200 if we're lucky. Yeah. And I was like, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> Dude, I heard somewhere, this might not be true, but like the union day rate for some cinematographers is like four grand. I believe day. that. I believe that. That's insane. I mean, you got to work for years to become a union yeah. cinematographer, so I get it. But also, hot damn, I want a job that pays me $4,000 a day. Yeah, that'd yeah. be great. That'd be nice. <laughs> We're working to it. Hello, jobs people. Hey, please, give please me hire one. us. Yeah. Please, We're, we are good at what we do. <laughs> Somewhat, yeah. Yeah. a little. <laughs> um, okay, so l- l- let's uh, let's continue the narrative yeah, a little bit. Sorry. So, no, no, no. I, I enjoyed the the tangent. Um, so, um, Blood and Water got um, finished around and early released in early 2017. Yes. Um, so what was we the next? world premiered at Miami Film Festival. Amazing. Uh, which is March 2017. How did you vet film festivals? Like what did you, what was your criteria for like, I want to submit to that? Well, I submitted to Miami because it's where I'm from. Okay. Um, and I made sure to mention that I'm from there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Miami, I, I do know, does have categories for filmmakers from Miami. Um, well, they have categories for films made in Miami. Made there, yeah. Uh, mine was not, but I am from Miami. Uh, and so I was hoping that that would win me some brownie points, and apparently it did. Great. Um, I submitted to – I didn't really have a good festival plan. In fact, my new film that's on the festival circuit is the first film where I really kind of went into the submission process with a kind of scientific method. This is my daughter, Yoshiko. My daughter, Yoshiko. Yoshiko. Yeah, have have fun. (laughs) I got to pronounce it. I know, I was trying. Yoshiko. Yoshiko. There you go. My daughter, Yoshiko. You're fluent already. Wonderful. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, 
Yeah, so that was kind of just kind of guessing. Uh, I submitted to the ones that I wanted. I submitted to Sundance and Slamdance and South by Southwest and all the in Tribeca, New York Film Festival, Toronto. You don't know you're not going to get in until you try. Yeah, um, and now I know I'm not going to get in. Um, <laughs> in all fairness, I would really like to see the percentage of films programmed at Sundance that get in through blind submissions. Rather than just knowing a program. No, yeah, well, I do know that Sun, and Sundance is very open, that they scout films. It's a very well-known fact. They talk oh. about it. So mm-hmm. at least they're not, they're not like, they're not like deceptive. There's, it, there's articles, the spokespeople, they talk about it. Totally. And that, that's why it's such a good fe- festival is because they really curate their selections. Mm-hmm. Um, they really do try to get the best of the best, and they know that blind submissions is not necessarily the best way to get that. Mm-hmm. Um I don't know if they've ever been open about the percentage that come through blind submissions, but I'd be willing to bet that it's extremely low. And they also have one of the highest submission rates of festivals, and it's damn expensive to submit to Sundance. Which I think uh, is probably for the best, despite their... Probably for the best. For them. For them. And it's also, yeah, I mean, it's it's the best for them. It would make sense that people only people who are serious would spend the money... Correct. To submit to Sundance, but also because Sundance is so famous and so big and such a be-all, end-all for, like, an indie filmmaker, I think people don't care and they'll still submit anyway. Sure. Um, because it's Sundance. Um, so, but I didn't really have a plan of attack. I submitted to the big, big ones that I that were the Pipe Dream Film Festivals. I submitted to the film festivals near where Steel was from, so I submitted to, like, Heartland in Indiana. I submitted to... Ones in Michigan, where, around where we shot. I submitted to ones around where we shot. Ones where people who were involved in the film are from, mm-hmm. and I submitted to a couple of like first-time filmmaker festivals, and that was it. And I got into like seven or eight, uh, and then later premiered on Short of the Week, which was excellent because I had been wanting to get a film on Short of the Week for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this was my third attempt to get on Short of the Week, and it was my first success. Um, and that was really great for me because then Amaletto, which is a YouTube channel that posts short films, mm-hmm. saw it on Short of the Week, and they asked to distribute it on their YouTube channel. That's great. Uh, which recently just hit a million views, which I'm very proud of. That's kind of that's a milestone for me as a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was really cool, and it's really fun to read the YouTube comments. Sometimes not very fun, <laughs> but they're, the fact that they're about 90% positive comments makes me really happy. Mm-hmm. Um, How many of them are f- uh, about blood and water or about that moment early on where he hits, hits his head? That's like <laughs> half of them. Really? Yeah, the other half are people questioning if people really brush their teeth in the shower, because there's a scene where he brushes his teeth in the shower, and apparently a lot of people were really confused by this. I don't know. What? Listeners at home, do you brush your teeth in the shower? Put your answer in the comments below. Zach, in the podcast right now, I do this. You do this? Yeah. I totally do this. <laughs> what? I don't understand why people are so confused. It just saves time. Exactly. And, like, like... It's wanna, not weird. Also, like, you can't do anything else while you're brushing your teeth. Like, I guess you could watch TV, but, like, not really because you have to pause it to, like, spit out, spit out the toothpaste and, and do all this <laughs> stuff. Like, like it, it just saves time. 
Like you're in the shower, you might as well brush your teeth. This is not absurd. This it's is not totally absurd. normal. Not, I will I will die on this hill. Okay, <laughs> I will die on this hill. Um, oh, that's and <laughs> some YouTube is weird. <laughs> yeah, you just uh, it's it's there's like thousands of comments of like who brushes their teeth in the shower or like I do that too. I'm so glad. Like I'm not crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I feel seen. Yes, I'm glad. I could. I'm glad I could help such an oppressed minority feel represented in cinema. <laughs> so the next film, brushing your teeth in the shower, a yes. film by Brian. Blum. This is a demographic we really need to talk about. <laughs> I think guys. so. Underrepresented in film. I know. Um, and yeah, and uh, NYU apparently submitted it to the BAFTAs. Wow. It was shortlisted. I didn't even know. And then I got an email saying, you're on the BAFTA shortlist. And I was like, okay. <laughs> what does this mean? What, what does this mean? <laughs> and then it took me a second to realize how big of a deal that yeah, was. That's huge. Um, and, and that was really cool. And I got to meet a lot of really awesome people through BAFTA New York. They're an excellent organization. Cool. They do a lot of really cool stuff for filmmakers. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Yeah, and, and then I submitted to First Run, which is NYU's showcase festival in 2017, like two years after I graduated. So apologies to everyone who's submitting like the year after. Right. <laughs> because they're like, who's this guy who wasn't even in any of our classes? No one knows him. <laughs> who is this guy? So old. So old. <laughs> um, but uh, I was one of the finalists, and then I won the grand prize. Uh at NYU, which was an incredible honor. And That's great. it was really that was that was one of the most validating, possibly more so than getting into Miami Film Festival, which was the biggest festival I'd gotten into at the mm-hmm. time. Um, that was a real moment of validation for me where I was like, wow, I'm actually good at this. Like what I make is good and people like it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a really important for, moment for me. That's great. So um, then what, how was the transition from that into My Daughter Yoshiko? Well, I knew that I wanted to make another film, and I knew that I couldn't spend nearly as much money as I did on Blood and Water. Totally. Uh, thankfully, the the first run prize that I won from NYU came with a ten thousand dollar grant, um, which was very helpful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I wanted knew that I wanted to go home to Miami to make a film there because my parents uh, made a lot of sacrifices to send me to film school. Um, they're not, you know, they're not poor, but they're not like incredibly wealthy by any means, uh, and they had to sacrifice a lot of the luxuries and like ability to go on vacations and 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 the nice things that they really like out of life that they've built for themselves. They had to sacrifice that to send me to film school. So I really wanted to go home and make a film and have them have the opportunity to be on set mm. to see what their hard work has amounted to because they don't really know what it's like to work on set. They don't know how difficult it is and all the hard work that's involved Mm -hmm. and so I wanted them to be able to see that and I knew that my mother is a therapist and she had an office that was a free location and my parents had a house how we doing doing right keep going so I wanted to write a script that involved a house and a doctor's office and in high school I volunteered with this program called the friendship circle which pairs up volunteers with children with special needs for weekly or biweekly house visits just to provide some recurring social interaction for people who struggle to maintain that themselves. That's great. Um, and I did that for five years. And I had seen firsthand 
parents dealing with children with disabilities, and I had always admired the incredible strength and perseverance and dedication that that took. And I've always been, you know, I'm at a point in my life where I'm thinking about my future and if I'm going to have kids or not. Um, and because I, you know, volunteered with this organization, I think about the prospect of having kids and autism and how the rates of autism are increasing. Um, and I'm kind of, I'm, I'm terrified of the possibility of having a child with a disability because it is a career killer. And I'm such a career-driven person. And I felt this pressure to like, kids are career, kids are career, which is a, a debate in and of itself, but ex exacerbated by this kind of anxiety about having a child with a disability because I know that I would have to give up my career to care for that child. Mm -hmm. And I, and that just, it sounds like such a terrible, terrible choice to have to make. Uh, and I'm in awe of these parents who made that choice. Um, and I decided I wanted to make a film exploring that. Um, and it would be set in a doctor's office and in a house. Um, so I started interviewing some parents, some of the ones that I volunteered for, some that I just met through other reasons, and some family friends who had children with disabilities about their experiences. And I randomly went home to visit my high school. And I visited my high school Japanese teacher, who's this incredible woman that I had for four years. Um, and I mentioned this project, and she said, I have a daughter with Asperger's. Wow. D I did not know that. And it's strange that I didn't know that because I had this incredible relationship with her for four years as her mm -hmm. student, but it, it was a relationship that went beyond the classroom. Like, I went to Japanese competitions. Like, we went on trips to Washington, D.C. together for mm -hmm. these, like, Knowledge Bowl competitions. And, like, I, I did a lot of extracurricular stuff that she supervised. Like, we were... Like, I consider her a family friend now. Um, and it's crazy that I had no idea. Mm -hmm. um, so I sat down with her in a Starbucks, and I have about eight hours of recordings of her and I talking about her life and her daughter, and also, interestingly, about how her culture has informed her, uh, her, her parenting of her daughter mm -hmm. and how... Japan and Japanese culture handles people with disabilities and has and is getting better at it now, but has been really bad about it in the past. Mm -hmm. um, and I knew that I, this was the story. This is the person's story that I wanted to tell. So we abandoned the doctor's office because the story that we wrote around her true life didn't require it. Um, and it became a much more expensive film. And, but it was, but because it was the story that I wanted to tell and it's her story and it's, I'm just incredibly grateful that she trusted me with such an intensely personal story. And that's, that's how that story became and how I ended up writing that. Uh, that's great. It's one of the hardest things I've ever had to write. And it's one of the hardest things I've ever had to write because as a white man, I am the farthest thing from a Japanese woman. <laughs> sure. Uh, as a white man with no kids, yeah, I am the farthest thing from a Japanese woman with a child on the spectrum mm -hmm. in so many ways. And so, you know, to take on the the responsibility to sensitively write about a culture of which you don't belong and to do the research uh, for one community, let alone three, uh, mm -hmm. female Japanese 
and the autism community is it was an incredible burden and I and it was difficult and I I struggled to get to a point where I felt like I had earned the right to make this film in a lot of ways mm -hmm. and so I went back and started volunteering with the JCC in Manhattan doing uh, volunteering for these uh, events they put on for people with disabilities um, and then I eventually felt comfortable making the film and then I did it that's great yeah and to what extent was um, your teacher, family friend involved in that process? She wasn't, she wasn't very involved. I spoke to her about the story. I sent her the final script. She mm -hmm. loved it. That's um, reassuring. And she came and she visited set and she met the actor who was playing her. Um, and then she came to the premiere. That's great. So what was the turnaround for that project? How long did it take to come to fruition? I did that one very fast. I wrote the script in December of 20, 2017, shot it March 2018. Wow. And it had its world premiere in March 2019. So it was, I think the official finished date was January 2019 is when we finished it. That's great. Um, yeah, we turned that around really fast. Um, it's the fastest I've ever made a film in my life, especially of that magnitude. What lessons did you take from Blood and Water that you applied here? I really wanted to try a different form of cinematography. Blood and Water was very static camera, very safe cinematography. <clears throat> I wanted to get a little bit more adventurous with the camera, uh, try a handheld aesthetic. Um, I learned a lot about showing and not telling, which is one of the flaws of the writing in Blood and Water, is it's very exposition heavy, sometimes when it doesn't need to be. And people say what's on their mind when I wanted to find ways to show what's on your mind without dialogue. Mm -hmm. um, for example, uh, there is not a lot of, there's not a lot of dialogue in, in My Daughter Yoshiko, except when it's necessary. Um, I specifically didn't want to use the word autism in the film until a very specific moment that happens at the end of the film. Mm -hmm. um, and I wanted you to understand that that's what was going on without using that word. Um, and I think that that kind of form of, of making the audience think about what's going on instead of telling it to their faces really makes the film more engaging and more interesting to watch. Mm -hmm. And also really puts you inside the mind of the main character because that was my goal, was to make people understand the depth of the sacrifice and the depth of the commitment that it takes to raise a child with a disability because this woman that I know and I love did it, is doing, is still doing it. And the right. reality of the fact is that a lot of people who parent children with disabilities, that is a lifelong job. Mm -hmm. That is a job that you do until you die. Right. And a lot of these parents face the reality that their children will never get better or will never be independent. Mm -hmm. And that's, 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 I just think that's really sad. 
And that's another reason why this film was very difficult to make because the subject matter is just really depressing. Mm -hmm. And I could feel myself getting depressed talking to all these parents. And I never want to make something that depressing again. I'm really proud that I did it. But I feel like I want to do a comedy next or something. I was going to ask, do you want to take a step back to those Edgar Wright and I do, I do, I do. That's that's on my list. I want to get back into comedy and do stuff that makes people smile. Mm -hmm. Um... I feel like dramedy is where I'll ultimately end up, like dark comedy. I think feel like that's where I'm strongest. Um, so what what is next for you? Well, right now I am. I have this new job, which I got as a direct result of my daughter Yoshiko. Um, I mentioned I was doing this volunteer work with the JCC, and there's this company that I now am the executive director and head of production at called Adapt Lab Filmmakers. It's a small boutique production company that works with employees on the autism spectrum or with other forms of intellectual disabilities. Cool. Uh, the goal of the company is for employees to come work on the projects we do, which is a mixture of client-based work and original productions, and hopefully learn the skills that they need to eventually leave and have a freelance career. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have three employees right now that I work with. Uh, you know, we, we, we're doing some sketch comedy videos. We just did a corporate video for Mount Sinai Hospital. I have a call later today with for Mount Sinai that wants to hire us again. Great. Um, I got the job because the company is financed by a very generous uh, charitable donor who also donates a lot to the JCC. And so they heard of me from my volunteer work there. Mm-hmm. And I have a very specific skill set of filmmaking and working with people with disabilities. So the job kind of fell in my lap, and I'm really enjoying it. It's a lot of fun. That's great. I get to live out my high school filmmaking fantasies of, like, making YouTube sketch comedy videos. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> which is, but I also get paid to do it. So, right. it's, so it's awesome. <laughs> um, kind of gives you a chance to maybe enhance certain kinds of minutia of skills. Yeah, yeah, and I'm learning, I'm getting paid to learn, you know, After Effects again, and because I have to teach this to one of our employees who really wants to be an editor, so I have to learn After Effects Mm -hmm. and get better at it so I can teach it to him. So, like, I learned how to do motion tracking, which is not something I knew how to do. Mm Mm-hmm. And now I know how to do motion tracking because I had to teach it to someone. So it's 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 an incredible job. That's great. It's, I, I can't explain all the ways in which it's a totally incredible job because mm-hmm. I get to learn and I get paid and I get to do what I want and I get to do a good thing. Totally. So it's uh, really enjoying my time here. Adapt Lab. Adapt Lab Filmmakers. That's yeah. great. So if people want to go to follow you or watch your films, where, where can they go? Tell us about that. Uh, I mean, I'm social media-wise, I'm... Mostly on Instagram. I have Facebook too, but Facebook's kind of dying. Uh, yes. So I'm at Brian the Plum. Oh, uh, when I was great. little, people would make fun of my last name and call me Plum. So I'm reclaiming that. Clever. <laughs> Clever kids. Yeah, my mom said, you should just say, I prefer Peach. That did not go over well. <laughs> <laughs> mom, terrible advice. And then they would punch me in the face. <laughs> Uh, so Brian the Plum on Instagram mm-hmm. uh, if you want to check out Blood and Water that's on actually go to YouTube um, type in Blood and Water Omeletto O-M-E-L-E-T-O um, check it out uh, give it a like give it a view yeah Comment uh, about brushing your teeth. Yeah, definitely comment shower. about brushing your teeth let us know if you brush your teeth in the shower <laughs> um 
And uh, my daughter Yoshiko's on the festival circuit. It's playing. It's playing. Uh, it's playing at DC Shorts Breckenridge Film Festival, and also at Urban World Film Festival here in New York City on the same weekend. Wow! So I have to pick which one I'm going to. Uh, I'm probably going to Ur- Urban World. Um, but that is late September. I think it's like 19th through 22nd. Cool. Could be wrong about those dates. It's late September. Urban World. Um, it's playing in Oaxaca, Mexico on, in October. Hmm. Uh, and hopefully several other film festivals after that. And then I'm not sure what we're going to do with it after that. I might get on Short of the Week and put on Amuleto. Yeah, man. And then people can discuss... Something else about the film. <laughs> is there teeth brushing in the shower in this film? There is no teeth brushing in the shower, unfortunately. Disappointed. I know. <laughs> um, is there anything else that you that you wanted to add? Uh, any advice that you have for people coming up, or any like kind of like uh, anecdotes that you have? Just keep doing whatever you can. I mean. E- You've only got so much time on this earth. You've only got so much time to prove yourself. And if you're, if you really think you're destined to make it, you're going to be the kind of person who's constantly trying to figure that out. And that doesn't mean you're making a, sh- making a short film every weekend. Maybe you're going to networking parties and you're just trying to befriend everybody and get a, you know, meet the most talented people. But just always be moving forward, and. And you'll find success in where shape or form is destined to to be yours. Brian, thank you for joining me, man. Thank you for having me. It's been great. Hey, guys, just want to remind you that not only can you find the Full Frame Podcast on HMD's website, www.hmdfilms.com, but you can find us on Facebook, and most importantly, you can find us on iTunes, where we would really like if you could leave a review and subscribe. Thanks. Have a great week.